turn in your Bibles to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 1, and uh, verse 8. Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Before we keep going, I'll just open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and Lord, I thank you for this message that you've laid on my heart. And I pray, Father, that uh, you would allow me to communicate it properly and that the people that you've chosen to hear this message, I pray, Father, that you would allow them to uh, receive it and that, uh, that it wouldn't be me, but it would be you talking through me. I pray, Father, that uh, you would get a hold of somebody's heart today and use them for the furtherance of, this, of your kingdom. And I pray and thank you for everything, Lord. I pray all this in Jesus' name. We all want people around us to get saved. But how will that happen? I'd like to propose that it all starts in the heart. What you believe in your heart will change the way you go through life. But on not only that, the way you go through life will also change the society you are in. Most every person wants to see changes in their society. And I believe that every single person that is on this earth was created for a purpose. They were created with lots of potential to potentially change the story of not just Canada, but every, every country and eventually the whole world. But not only Canada, the whole world, but in order to do that, you are going to need much more than what you currently believe. Sadly, most people go through this life and they only get to fulfill only part of what God has ever wanted them to. Many struggle only for mediocrity or for survival. And not many attempt what the greats would attempt. Many have chosen to live for themselves rather than for God. But going back to the scripture here, at the moment that Jesus ascended into heaven, the people at that time started to notice something. And the only words that they can really say is these that have turned the world upside down. A few people. That's all it took. The entrance of the gospel made a change in this whole world. The, when the gospel entered this world, it changed it. And if you would imagine with me, everything you see today, you can, you can see that it was actually affected by the gospel at some point. Everything in this world would be very different were it not for what the gospel has done. So I'd like, to, I'd like for you to take a look here in verse 8. And starting with that first part of that uh, first sentence there. But ye shall receive power. So the first thing you need to do is you need to get saved. You need to receive the gospel. And let's all take a look here in Romans. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, power has a different definition. It has many diff uh, different definitions these days, but I'd just like to illustrate something to you. There was an Italian chemist named Sobrero, Italian, not Mexican. Sobrero was his name. And he was the one who found nitroglycerin, okay? Nitroglycerin, what he found was that it was a very volatile substance, right? In its liquid state, it was a very volatile substance. Another man came along named Nobel. And Nobel found that if you take silica and you take nitroglycerin and you put it together, what you end up is with some kind of a clay. And you finally stabilized nitroglycerin. Okay. Now, I know I'm going off on chemistry here, but what I'm trying to say is nitroglycerin will not blow up on you. <laughs> okay. So he found that if he can take this clay and put it into these cylinders, all right, and Nobel, he wanted to market this for mainly uh, people who worked in the mines. He, he put it into a cylinder so that he can stick these inside of drilling holes, right? And in order to market it, he wanted a certain name for it, a name that would portray what he's trying to sell. So he looked into the Greek, and he found the word dynami. It was the perfect word for his product. And he called the product, can you guess? Dynamite. Yeah. Dynamite shows us, or it illustrates the power that God is trying to portray in the verse that we just saw in Acts 1.8. The word power there is talking about a miraculous power with great strength, mighty, something that can make things move and do great things. Usually this word is used in the context of a great miracle. All right? If you would turn with me to Psalms 66. Take a look at Psalm 66 in verse 3. Psalm 66, verse 3. One of the great things we get to see is how God can just win even wars. All right? Psalm 66, verse 3. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 60, verse 12, it says, Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. See, are you aware that God can just about do anything? He can do anything. It doesn't take him a snap of a finger to destroy this universe if he wanted to. All he has to do is look at it. God doesn't need to be scrambling for nuclear power to destroy a nation. He already controls the power of a thousand suns in, his, in the palm of his hands. If you want to take a look at it, God even has control of all nations. Take a look here in Proverbs 21, verse 1.
Proverbs 21, verse 1, God controls the nations. Verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. God has full control of everything you see. And in, even in Psalm 60, verse 6 to 8, it says, God hath spoken in his holiness, I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and mete out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the strength of mine head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Philistia, triumph thou because of me. You see, God has full control of the nations that surround us completely. And it doesn't matter how much planning or how foolproof the infrastructures of these nations think they are. It's just a matter of God doing this and everything falls apart. And then we also know this, God is a God of miracles. And again, in Psalm 66, verse 6, it says, He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. And I'd actually have you here turn to 1 Kings, verse 18. First Kings, verse 18, uh, chapter 18, excuse me, and verse 38. I'll have you go to verse 38, but I'll read 33 and 34. This is a, a talking about Elijah when they were about to make the sacrifice to God when, before the fire came down. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. Excuse me. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. So just quick math here. So they did it three times, four barrels. How many barrels? Twelve barrels. Okay. So take, take a minute and realize that the context here, there had been drought for three and a half years. So no water has been seen. And they just took 12 barrels and poured it, and they've made a trench now around the sacrifice. Okay? Verse, verse 38. Okay? It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt, off, burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Okay, that's miraculous. Okay? We're, we have an amazing God. That's what I'm trying to get to. It's not just fire. It's not just a meteor. If you even notice, Elijah was right beside it. It didn't consume Elijah. It consumed the whole offering and everything around it. That's even more miraculous, if you ask me, because I would think fallout would destroy Elijah. See, God is amazing. I think we understand that God is the, most, the ultimate being that exists in this universe. And sometimes our human mind can't even comprehend how vast, how infinite God really is. Our finite mind can't even understand how infinite God is. In Romans 8, 11, 
the greatest power in the universe wants to reside in you. Let's turn to Romans 8, 11. Romans 8, 11, it says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. See, a lot of times we don't take it into account that the God who can do such things with Elijah in the story of Elijah, the God who brought the Israelites, over two million Israelites through the Red Sea, we don't take into account how powerful he is, but also the fact that he resides in every single Christian. We forget to do that. The same God who established a church, an institution that has stood the test of time, wants to dwell inside of you. The same God who said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, wants to reside in you. He who made the institution of that we call the church today, that stood the test of time. But before we keep going, I want to ask you, have you converted yet? When was there a time in your life where you really transitioned into what Christianity truly is? The Bible Christianity. Was there a time? Because in order for God to work through you, in order to receive the power of God, you must first receive Jesus Christ. Now, second thing, going back to Acts 1.8. And maybe I'll have you put, your, put a bookmark there because we'll, we'll, be going, we'll be going back to it a lot. The next part of that verse, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Our power comes from God. And I think, I think I've stressed that. But our power comes from God. We of ourselves don't have any power. Think about this. The Holy Spirit is what brought up Christ from the dead. We read it there in Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Man truly has no power of his own. Imagine this. You've heard of the Energizer Bunny, correct? What if they marketed the Energizer Bunny without batteries? How efficient is that? What if we marketed Christians without the Holy Spirit? How effective are we? Because you see, a Christian without the Holy Spirit is just a human being. That's all he is. Without the Holy Spirit, we can barely define ourselves as Christians. See, in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. We can't do anything without Jesus. We can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. There was a, um, there was a small uh, research done by Angus Reed Institute. They're a nonprofit institute that does research and statistics in Canada. 
what they found is that 20% of Canadians pray every day. It's not bad. What you didn't take into account is what they define as a Canadian. Because Canadian doesn't mean Christian, right? So 20% of Canadians pray. So that means out of the religions that pray, okay, the majority, take that number into account. That's from all the religions. Over a million, there's over a million Muslims today in Canada. They're included in that number. There are half a million Hindus in Canada. They're included in that number. There are a half a million Sikhs in Canada. They're included in that number. There's about 350,000 Buddhists in Canada. They're included. There's about 350,000 Jews. They're included. So what you're left with is, well, where do the Baptists find, uh, find their place? Let's assume that Baptists and Protestants prayed every single day. Every single Baptist and every single Protestant prayed every single day. Okay? That makes about 2.5 million. So 2.5 million out of 37 million, what is the percentage of Christians that pray? 6.75%. So 6.75%, if we're assuming that every single Christian, every single Baptist is a good prayer warrior that gives their mornings every single day, every single morning, they meet with the Lord. That's assuming that. And we all know that not everyone prays every morning. We even know that many Christians don't even pray before they start eating. You can already see where the lack of power is amongst Christians. How is it that we're going to change this world? How is it that God is going to use us if we're not even willing to give our day when we start? You see, change in your own life will start if you want it for others too. Okay? Turn to Matthew. Uh, keep, maybe keep a finger in uh, Acts. But turn to Matthew. Chapter 9, verse 37 and 38. Now what had happened throughout chapter 9 is that Jesus helped the multitudes. He healed a man sick of the palsy. He called Matthew. He healed a woman with an issue of blood. He brought a, uh, he brought a dead girl back to life. He heals two blind men, and he gives the voice to a mute man. And then in verse 37 and 38, here's what Jesus says. Then saith he unto his disciples, the, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Into his harvest. I want you to take into account something of all the prayer requests that Jesus could have actually asked. What did he ask for? He asked that we pray for more laborers into the harvest. Of all the things that God could have done and could have asked for, he asked that we would pray for more laborers. Here's the question. Why pray? Why do we pray instead of just sending them or going instead? Because your heart will change towards it. Your heart changes according to what you pray for. Okay? 
In your adoption booklet, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a poem in it. And I have the poem right here. Uh, the adoption booklet I'm talking about is the adoption booklet that we give out with all our missionaries. Last night I took a journey to a land across the seas. I didn't go by ship or plane. I traveled on my knees. I saw so many people there in bondage to their sin, and Jesus told me I should go, that there were souls to win. But I said, Jesus, I can't go to lands across the seas. He answered quickly, yes, you can, by traveling on your knees. He said, you pray, I'll meet the need. You call, and I will hear. It's up to you to be concerned for lost souls far and near. And so I did. I knelt in prayer, gave up some hours of ease, and with the Savior by my side, I traveled on my knees. As I prayed on, I saw souls saved and twisted persons healed. I saw God's workers' strength renewed while laboring in the field. I said, yes, Lord, I'll take the job. Your heart I want to please. I'll heed your call and swiftly go by traveling on my knees. You see, eventually, maybe God would call you as well. Maybe God would have it. If God would have it, he would call you to be a laborer. It's interesting because after 1,900 years, after more than 1,900 years since Jesus' ascension, we have an abundance of teachers. We have an abundance of engineers. We have an abundance of doctors. We have an abundance of architects. We have an abundance of carpenters. We have an abundance of millionaires. We have an abundance of billionaires. But we don't have enough laborers in the fields. Last part in Acts 1.8. Going back to it. says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witness, witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem. If we were unchanged, truth is we cannot make a change at all. And this is the last time I'll make you turn here. Turn to 1 John, chapter 1. First John, chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full." 
See, what's interesting is all the things that John is starting to talk about. We have seen, we have heard, we have touched. Why do you think he mentions all these? I have a thought for you, because Jesus changed him. This whole experience that he has had with Jesus has changed him. The world remains unchanged, not because we have a lack of Christians. The world is not unchanged because of a lack of Christians. If, because if that was the case, think about the first century church. They changed the world, and they were a few Christians. It's not a lack of Christians. It's the lack of unchanged Christians the lack of unchanged Christians that we have in this world, that's the reason the world still remains unchanged. See, looking back in, in, uh, in the book of Acts there, chapter 1, I know I said, uh, I hope you kept your finger there. <laughs> as much as the context is geographical in nature, you know, going from Jerusalem and Judea into the other most parts of the world. As much as that is geographical, I'd like to dig just a little deeper. Why Jerusalem? One of the things I'd like to propose is that Jerusalem was also the heart of Israel. See, the heart of the nation was Jerusalem, and it started in the heart. It was there, it was in Jerusalem where the ruling took place. Decisions were made in Jerusalem. To rule Jerusalem meant you can rule all of Israel. And it was where God dwelt in. And when God didn't dwell there, they were in trouble. It matters what Jerusalem did. It matters what your heart believes. The gospel works first from the heart outwards. The gospel works from the inside first and then towards the outside, not the other way around. It is the change that God made in your heart that changes how you will perceive this world. It's that heart. Remember Deuteronomy 6.5, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. It starts with the heart, with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. How is your heart? Your heart plays a huge role in your worship, in your view, in your sense of value. Even as Jeremiah said, mine eye affecteth mine heart. How do you see this world today? Do you see it in the need of a savior? Do you see it in the need of changes to be made? So, in your heart remains, if your heart remains unchanged by the word of God, it is imperative that you take a look at your heart right now. God's heart is to see people get saved. But if we will get used to God this summer, we must first give our heart to God. If you want to start having a heart just like God's, you need to start giving your heart right now to God. Give your heart to obeying God and his commandments. Give your heart to loving others as Christ loved them. And pray for your heart to start to change. 
And just since you're already there in Acts, I want you to take a look here in verse 11. Chapter 1 and verse 11. Which also said ye, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So, what if we were to change it just a little bit, just to apply it to us? Ye men of GBC, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? There's a, there's a big job to be done. Soul winning and missions is staring at you in the face. What are you going to do about it? And every time you come to church, you hear about missions, you hear about somebody getting saved, you hear about the need for more people to get saved. What are you going to do about it? You're just going to listen or are you going to act? See, there's a lot of unsaved. There's a lot of unsaved loved ones that we have all around us. There's, pre there's people, there's friends that we have all around us. And we know that we ought to witness to them. But think about it. You need to make a decision. If you've read your Bible, you know that you need to work on this. William Carey, after reading his Bible he had decided to leave the Anglican church. And Carey, he joined up to a Baptist church, right? Along with his change, he also earnestly started to search the scriptures. And what he found is that he had to get baptized after he got saved. So that's what he did in 1783. And right after his baptism, his pastor recommended that he should start going into the ministry to start teaching. So William Carey started to teach. He started to study, and what he ended up doing was that he found that geography was something that he really enjoyed. So his studies of geography and reading, what he found was that when he was looking at the maps and he was looking at the countries of the then known world, he realized that there is a need for foreign missions and foreign soil. And Carey started to ask himself, but who will tell them of Jesus Christ? As the burden grew, so did his burden for ministering. And eventually his pastor in 1787, so if you've been doing the calculation, that's four years after he got baptized. Four years after Kerry got baptized, his pastor told him, you should become a pastor. So he went off to a different city, uh, as a smaller town, and he became a pastor. He lived on a meager salary, so uh, what he ended up doing was he started working on the side as a cobbler, somebody who fixes shoes. While he was working as a cobbler, he also was learning seven different languages. He, he ended up uh, learning Greek, Hebrew, and French, and Dutch, and many other. But Carey still had a growing burden for the gospel to reach foreign soil. So one day, a Baptist gathering of pastors called him up. Carey spoke of the need of missions to the heathen. And then a Dr. Ryland exclaimed, Sit down, young man. When the Lord gets ready to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. That shocked Carrie. Carrie never considered, however, the realm of possibilities that only the commands of God can do. He looked only to the question of duty. 
Out of his own hard-earned money, Kerry got together enough funds to print out his own tract. His tract was entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of a Christian to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. What a tract. Soon after the publishing of this tract, he was invited to another church in Nottingham during the month of May, where he would preach from the text of Isaiah 54, verse 2 to 3. His opening statement to the sermon, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And the whole missionary movement, as we know it today, hung by a thread that brief moment. What you believe in your heart will change the way you go through life. Accept the truth that God has all power and he can do it. Access this power through prayer every single day. Allow the Holy Spirit to change the way you go through life. And saving the world is what missions is all about. And it all starts in your heart. Let's pray.